I'm Aaron Hinkin. Welcome to Life in the Balance, a monthly radio program here on WYPR where we take the time to hear one person's story. And we take that story as the inspiration for a meaningful conversation about public policy issues. We've covered a pretty wide range of topics on the show so far, from homelessness to post-incarceration struggles to teenage depression. And you can listen to those episodes at wypr.org slash life in the balance. You can also find the show on iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts. Today, we turn our attention to the epidemic of gun violence in Baltimore. Maybe you saw the recent USA Today article. It named Baltimore the nation's most dangerous city. We suffered 342 homicides last year, and that is up 17% from the year before. If you do the math, that means that about 56 out of every 100,000 people in the city are murdered. The only other U.S. city with more homicides than Baltimore? Chicago. And here's the twist. Both Baltimore and Chicago have some of the country's strictest gun laws. The problem is that gun laws are only effective when people decide to acquire their guns legally. In the hour ahead, we're going to talk with WBAL-TV investigative reporter Jane Miller. She has been reporting on the growing illegal gun trade in Baltimore. But first, the cost of gun violence is not just a number, it's a toll paid in human lives. I want to introduce you to a 22-year-old man named Brian. Brian very nearly got added to Baltimore's murder total. Two years ago, he was shot 23 times. We recorded our conversation with Brian in an office near the University of Maryland Shock Trauma Center where his life was saved. I grew up in West Baltimore. Like, my family. I'm my only boy, and I got like five sisters. I mean, just growing up for me in Baltimore is really hard. My family ain't really have no money, really. My mother was addicted to drugs. My father beat on my mother while I was young. He beat on me. Yeah, I saw plenty of times people get shot. People lying on the ground dead. It was like, it's very it's common. That's the only thing I can remember was I was just walking to the store and just was hearing shots. And just me just falling to the ground. And just me lying on the ground just thinking like, wow, my life already end. Like, I ain't even really just, I ain't even live my life. I ain't even get out of Baltimore yet. Like, I'm ready to die. I'm ready to leave my family. I'm ready to really be really gone. But I was like, I can't die. I can't die. I'm too young. I ain't live my life. Brian was unwilling to go into the details of who shot him or why. But he emphasized the daily violence and preponderance of guns in his neighborhood. When Brian talks about finding himself bleeding on the ground, you can hear a mix of emotions in his voice. Surprise is not one of them. The road to recover was long. Brian couldn't walk or talk for weeks, and he says he's still in constant pain. But he says he's taken the whole experience as a wake-up call to reassess his life. I got shot everywhere in my body, and it's really a miracle I'm still living. It's a miracle that like I can still really walk. I'm lucky I still walk. I'm just blessed to still be here living, and I can talk about my story. and probably can help the youth or just help anybody that I can help that's going through the struggle. 
it's really it was really hard like i used to get mad at myself like i couldn't really find a job it took like two years just to find two jobs for me but i didn't give up it's been really hard i had to stay dedicated stay focused and trying to maintain and just thinking of the big picture like i'm trying to change my life around trying to make a difference and I got a second chance at life, so I got to make a difference. Brian's working two jobs now as a security guard during the day and at Walmart in the evenings. He tries hard to look forward and not back. And he says he can do this in large part thanks to this man, his case manager. My name is Leonard Spain. Um, I'm the violence prevention specialist um, case manager down here at uh, University of Maryland Shock Trauma. He like a big brother to me, really. We be going back and forth sometimes. But he know where I'm coming from because we both going through the same struggle. We both went through the same struggle. Leonard Spain is working on his master's in social work degree. He also has other qualifications for this job he's doing as a case manager for shooting victims. He was one himself. Today, Leonard is trying to keep other survivors from going down the path he did. Revenge and retaliation. We, we were in someone's, you know, some other drug dealers community selling drugs, um, you know, which is, you know, that street culture. Um, that's like, was, you know, a disrespect. So it was a lot of tension um, and, you know, just a conflict happened and, you know, they shot at me and maybe like three days later, they shot my co-defendant's sister house up and a bullet hit her in the face. And maybe three days after that, we shot their house up and a bullet ricocheted and went through the window of a house next door and killed the innocent bystander. I, I remember just kind of feeling horrible. Um, the guy hadn't died yet, so maybe it was that next day because you know the incident happened in a whole nother state. Um, where I was selling drugs at, and I can remember the next day, um, you know, people was like, man, you gotta get out of town, go back home, and I kind of was dragging my feet, and um, the person I was in the car with pulled pulled over and got the newspaper, and um, i never forget um, the person reading, and it was like, you know, 22-year-old, you know, died six hours later. and, and it was like a feeling that I had never felt before, just um, hearing it. Um, and, and I just, I felt, you know, like, the, you know, that, that culture that I was a part of, I felt like deceived, like it tricked me. Leonard went on to serve 12 years of a 20-year prison sentence. He came out with a conviction to help others avoid his mistakes. Brian and Leonard brought together by a shared experience of gun violence. Their relationship and the healing that it's fostered is facilitated through the Violence Intervention Program. That's part of University of Maryland Shock Trauma. After the break, we're going to meet Dr. Carnell Cooper, the man who started the Violence Intervention Program back in 1998. Dr. Cooper spent years watching victims of traumatic violent injury get treated and released only to see those same victims readmitted just months later, often with more violent injuries. The revolving door that many gun violence victims experience 
and how to save lives in a way that goes beyond the hospital. That's coming up after the break on Life in the Balance. Stay with us. Welcome back. You're tuned to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. In the first segment of our program, we met Brian. He is a 22-year-old from West Baltimore who was shot 23 times. He survived miraculously, and right now he's working on healing mentally and physically with the help of his counselors and case managers at University of Maryland Shock Trauma's Violence Intervention Program. Brian's case manager is Leonard Spain, a man who knows the realities of gun violence on the street. He served time in prison for accidentally killing an innocent bystander during a turf war shootout. The work that Brian and Leonard are doing to heal and learn from one another is happening under the umbrella of the Violence Intervention Program. That program was created in 1998 by Dr. Carnell Cooper, who joins us now in studio. And Dr. Cooper, thank you for speaking with us today. Well, thank you for having me. You are a surgeon at Shock Trauma. How long have you been doing this work, and what's an average day like for you? <laughs> well, I've been you do a, more teaching now than actual surgery. Yeah, I do more teaching. I still involve clinically, but I do uh, more teaching and administrative stuff now than I've done uh, in the past. Um, I've been involved with uh, violence prevention now. Oh, I've been a surgeon since 1990. I've been involved with violence prevention since about 1993 or so. It's when we, when I first began to look into the issues uh, that were affecting our patients who present as victims of violence. Now, as I tra- as I went through my medical school residency training, it just I kept seeing these young people come in uh, with uh, very devastating violent injuries. And we would patch them up and send them out. And uh, I would ask, well, why aren't we doing anything to keep them from coming back to us? And as I, once I became an attending, all of a sudden I'm in a position where I can really begin to impact it. And that's what I began this work. And that happened on some sort of a noticeable regular basis. Repeat customers, I guess, for lack of a better word. <sighs> Correct. And, and that is one of the really frustrating things about patients who present as a result of violent injuries. At our nation's trauma center around the country, 30 to 60% of all the victims of violence will come back to the trauma center with another violent injuries. And when they come back, their chance of dying is much higher. There have been some studies uh, that have noted that the chance of a patient dying when they come back with repeated injury is, is, is as high as tenfold. And that's been a, uh, a something that we've seen over and over again. We don't know why that's the case. People theorize that it's because their immune system is depressed because of this repeat injury. But keep in mind, these are young, healthy people. That, that seems to be sort of unlikely. The, and let me have you repeat that percentage of how many of them are coming back if, if they've, they've been shot the first time? 30 to 60% of all violent injured patients, that means some gunshot wounds, stab wounds, or assault, will come back to our nation's trauma centers with another violent injury. Again, we're talking gunshot wounds, stab wounds, or, or, or assaults, or, the, or what we consider violent, violent injuries. Um, and so, so and, and as I said earlier, what's 
the reason that prevention is so important is because, again, it the data shows that that when they come back, their chances of dying are higher. And I said there's some thoughts about the immune system being a factor. I think there are issues that are going that are sociological that are going on on, the, on in in the communities that revolve around their injuries or or what happened uh, that are a factor as as well. Let me have you talk more about that uh, less tangible trauma, uh, not the physical trauma, but the mental trauma, the psychological, the emotional trauma that someone experiences after a shooting and um, what it's take what it takes to uh, do that kind of recovery work. Well, that is the kind of work that we have not done enough of. It's kind of work that's more challenging for trauma centers. It's, it's the touchy-feely stuff that we are just haven't invested the time or don't have the funds to invest the time into it or the, or the know-how. And that's why having a hospital-based violence intervention program is so important because we invest in the personnel uh, and the time that it takes to begin to look at the issues that put these young men and women at risk and begin to have them seek therapy. We begin to have talk about issues like conflict resolution. We get them in substance abuse programs. Uh, we get uh, them into jobs, etc. Those are the kinds of things that are important and necessary for healing, for moving them forward. And trauma centers without hospital-based violence intervention programs just aren't equipped to deal with the post-injury kinds of issues that put them at risk of coming back again. You took these observations and you got organized at a point in history. You created the Violence Intervention Program. Talk about how the program came about, how it was designed, and um, just sort of how it's functioned since. Well, it, it it came about in part, again, because, as, as I said earlier, we I kept seeing these young folks come back of all interest. And I asked the question, what should we be doing different to prevent them? The Shock Trauma Center is a tremendous place. It has a tremendous save rate. So, and if there's any place that you can and begin to attack this kind of problems, is at a place like the Shock Trauma Center. So our first study was... Let's ask what are things that put them in risk of coming back? And so we did a study, and it wasn't surprising. It it, it was issues like substance abuse. It's just like being from uh, living in a dangerous neighborhood, um, lack of education, uh, being from having conflict resolution issues, et cetera. All all things that we could we could talk about for a long time. We then said, okay, here are the issues. What do we need to have in place to attack them? And so we said. We need to have a social work. We need uh, to have a substance abuse. We need to have a, a partnership with other folks in the community who can address some of these issues, such as finding jobs, training, et cetera. So that's how, what's what we did. We put these people at the table. We designed a program, and we said, let's study it. Because if we want this kind of program to be adopted by other trauma centers around the nation, we've got to make sure that we study it and prove to them that it is effective and worth their investment. So we published a study in 2006 showing, uh, we did a, we, so the gold and standard in research is, is a 
randomized uh, 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 blind study. And I won't get into the details of what that is, but essentially what we proved was a hospital-based violence intervention program can save lives. It can reduce recidivism. But we also proved that it not only did it, it decrease the number of people who were coming back to our hospital with traumatic injuries, it also affected things like uh, their uh, criminal activity as well. It, 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 so we, and, we, we, and we found that we were able to get them into jobs, into job training programs, et cetera. So that is, that's, where we, that, that's uh, how, we got, how we got started. We then went on to work with other programs around the country that we still work with to uh, try to establish more hospital-based programs around the country. We've gotten to the point now where we have actually have programs in London, in Canada, as well uh, as in parts of South America. Let me zoom in and ask you to talk about the basics of the violence intervention program mm-hmm. proper. Say, take the case of Brian, who we mm-hmm. met in the first segment of our program. It took him several weeks before he could talk again, um, longer than that, to walk again. Um, once he's uh, sort of up and running physically, um, what happens next? Um, are they contacted by a member of the Violence Intervention Program? Do they sign up before they leave the mm-hmm. hospital? So so it's, it's important to, uh, one of the basics of our program, basic premises of our program, is that we want to meet the patient where they are at their bedside and move them forward. So over the course of, of the patient's stay in the hospital, we will see them multiple times uh, to be, be, build a relationship with uh, he, he or she. Begin to ask them, what are, the, what, what are you going to do when you leave the hospital? What are the challenges for you? Do you, again, do you have a job or education level? We ask them things outside of the of the sort of the, are you recovering from your surgery, how your wounds are doing. We're trying to look at what, who this person is, what makes them tick, and how we help move them forward. So there's no cookie cutter, one size fits all. It is, you know, do you, if you do, if you have a substance abuse program, a, a substance abuse issue, let's get you in a substance abuse program. If you don't have your, your, your GED or high school diploma, let's get you in a GED program. Let's together help you do that. And we're going to hold your hand through the process. Now, we're going to make hold you accountable, too, because we're reaching out to you, and you have to meet us halfway. We want to help you to move forward, and you're going to commit to coming down and working with us uh, to help to getting to those job interviews that we make for you. Uh, and once you get that job, we're going to help you adjust to the work environment. We have to keep in mind that for a lot of these young people who are maybe in their late 20s, early 30s, they've never had a full-time job, some of them. So how do you expect them to walk into that job and take it on and be comfortable in that environment having never been there? So we walk them through that that process too and help move them forward. We've had people in our program who have been part of us for as long as 10 to 12 years. Uh, and 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 there's no limit. And most of them are part of us, for perhaps six months to maybe a year or so. But we have group meetings, and some of them will come back for years on end. As long as we can move them forward, then we're doing well. And uh, along with all those things that that talk about job training, getting jobs, et cetera, there's also 
addressing the emotional part. The, our case, our our social worker will sit with them, uh, help them deal with the the PTSD or the post traumatic stress that may be part of their uh, their injury. Uh, help them deal with what they're going through with their uh, significant other. With uh, how to how to reacquaint themselves with their with their daughter or son that they haven't been a part of their lives for a decade or so. So we again see what the issues are and try to help move them forward. And I guess you've got people at a point where they're more likely than not to be open to reevaluating their life. This is, you know, they talk about the critical, the golden hour. Well, I guess there's a golden hour for reevaluating your life, too. Exactly right. And that's, again, one of the big premises of hospital-based programs is to address or to meet that patient at the bedside while for the for first time their life has slowed down. They are sitting there, their mother's at the bedside, they're maybe just us at the bedside with them and their, their kids and all of a sudden they are taking a moment to say, look, I almost, I almost just died. I got these tubes come out of me. I'm in pain. Maybe I should think about what I can do different. To move, to move myself forward. Maybe think about what was I doing? What were the things that put me at risk? What can I do different? So what we're doing is saying, okay, while they're there in that hospital bed, let's reach out and say, yeah, we want to move you forward. We don't want you to come back to our hospital with another injury. So here's how, what we can do to help you move forward. Are you interested? Now you haven't got to do this. There's, we're not gonna, we're not going to um, uh, put any restrictions on you. But what we want to do is save your life because when you come back again to this trauma center with another injury, your chances of dying are higher. That's just that's just plainly the data. So we will help you. Tell us how we can help you. It's so interesting to me, Doctor Cooper, that. You took it upon yourself to start this initiative, this violence intervention program, because, you know, when you have sort of a slow-burning murder rate in a city, it doesn't capture people's attention in the same way that a mass shooting might. Right. Um, yeah. But that that rate of violence that's easily sort of ignored right. is not invisible to you. Not at all. And for those of us who are surgeons in our nation's trauma center, we see it over and over and over and over again. And it's, it's, it's so it's devastating when you see a young 12-year-old coming with a gunshot wound to their chest. I mean, a 12-year-old should not be being shot. Or a 16-year-old, they should not be being shot and under my knife. And that is what you know, propelled me into this and propels many surgeons into the idea of us do, asking what can we do to prevent these things from happening. We, the, the, the weapons are so much more powerful uh, than they were in the past. And there was a study out of Hop, Johns Hopkins a few, many years back now, showing that, that that they, when they changed their staffing, they could impact all kinds of injuries except violent injuries. They they improve their outcome and all of them. 
it, all of them except violent injuries in this particular study, which says that there uh, shows how important prevention is. And when you when you are a staff person uh, and you're seeing these injuries come in, you're asking, what can we do different? And if you have a program like ours, we can. There's it gives our staff some place to go. Say, okay, we have a place. We saved this person. We have a program we can put them into now that will hopefully prevent them from coming back again. If you got a hospital or trauma center that doesn't have that, then they're just sort of like just okay. Well, we patched him up, but we know that that person's going to come back again. That 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 attitude that is that is not a it's not because they don't care it's because it's the reality of the situation, but because we have a program like ours and because other trauma sense a program like ours, it gives the staff something to say. Okay, if we can get this kid through this, then we have something we can do that, that that's that's positive that that will that will continue to save. Uh, to save their life, uh, and I think that's again one of the reasons why this work is is so uh, so important. We are, you know, we are given an opportunity uh, again to save the lives of our of our young, our of our of our future, um, and 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 that's that's important. Let me ask you a personal question, if mm-hmm. I might. When you were on the job at the shock trauma ward, you guys are a precision operation. You're extremely busy in there. I've been through there and seen how it operates, and it's just, it's a marvel. Mm-hmm. But I imagine there must be moments afterwards when you get a chance to breathe where the reality of what you've just witnessed hits you. Mm-hmm. Talk about some of the moments that you've had that have really given you pause and maybe planted the seeds for this idea in in your mind in the first place? Well, you know, I, I grew up in, in South Carolina in a fairly you know, poor neighborhood. And, and as I saw, as I went through my training and I saw these kids coming in to the trauma centers, they looked just like the kids in my neighborhood that I grew up with. Well, sometimes when you look at the clock news, you get the impression that all the folks who come in who are victims of violence are just folks who are just don't want to make progress. That's hardly the case. These are these are kids uh, parent, uh, with, with, um, who have the same aspirations as everyone else. They're just in situations in which they don't quite have the opportunities. If you, if you grow up and you are, uh, and you are a, a victim of of abuse as a child, or uh, you grew up when you were in a, in a neighborhood where gunshot wounds went off, go off in all hours of the night. It has an impact on you. If you don't, if you don't, if you don't finish tenth grade, your options are limited. And so, so, so when I saw these kids coming in, I knew that they had the same aspirations in, uh, that I had in my neighborhood. They want to move forward, and so. The only question was, how could we put in place something that could help move them forward? And that's and that's again part of the program. You know, the I don't when you're when you're when you're a trauma surgeon, the the you 
your goal is just making sure the patients from you keep them that you can save their life uh, and you just you you're you're in that mode have I done all the things I can do to save this person's life that's what you do at, at every patient that you see that you operate on what can I do different or what I'm sorry what can I do next what is there any other test I need to order any other any other is there an do I need, does it need to go to the operating room now? Do I need to watch them? That's sort of the mode you're in. The patients, the time when you have to stop and breathe, at least for me, is when there's someone who comes in whose life you can't save. And then you have to, after three or four or five or six hours, however long you were there working on that patient, you then have to stop and figure out how you're going to go out to the doors where the waiting area is and talk to the family of that patient. And, and, and you know, you have to understand that you think that that patient may have gotten a family, that mother or father got a call maybe three or four hours ago that their son or daughter was shot and they're in the they're at the hospital and you need to get there and they've been anxiously waiting all this time and hoping but not knowing and you have to walk out there and tell this parent that maybe maybe before that daughter or son left they had a little fight with the with the mom or dad or maybe they haven't even seen them in years but you have to go back there now and tell them that their life has something their life has changed forever. And, and and that's the most challenging part of of this job. Uh, you, there's no perfect way to do it. Not every way that you do it works for every family. You walk out there and sometimes there's just one mom or one dad sitting there by him, sitting there by them, by himself or herself. Or sometimes you walk out there and there are twenty people in a room that is packed, and you got to figure out who is the important person to talk to. Who is who's the mom? Who's the dad? And once you figure it out, you focus on them, and you can't draw it out for too long. You got to be quick, but you got to be clear. And you have to say, oh, hi, I'm Dr. Cooper. I, uh, your son came in in total cardiac arrest. Uh, we did everything we could to save his life. Unfortunately, we could not save his life, and he is dead. Those are harsh terms. Those are difficult terms for a parent or a, a, a sibling or a wife or a husband to hear. And then that the scream that sometimes comes from that um, family member uh, is so loud that you feel it through your body sometimes. And you, it's the one time that you as a surgeon feel helpless because you, you, can't, you can't reach in and put your finger on that, that bleeding pain that you're hearing. You can't cut it out. Um, I you have to figure out at that point does does that person feel comfortable 
comfortable with me putting my arms around them? Or do they feel comfortable with me just holding their hand? Um, uh, How do I pick them up off the floor? Uh, You have to uh, figure out how you can show empathy. And when they stop screaming, um, you ask them if you have any questions. Um, um, and, um, and you, I will usually give them my card and say, I will uh, give me a number and I'll call you in a few weeks. Because at this point, they don't hear you. They've, you. You've heard, they've only heard, it doesn't, it doesn't help to give them any more details. And, and maybe they won't want any, uh, but, but I will sometimes call a few weeks later just to ask, um, you know, do you have any questions? Do you uh, still, and you go from there. But, but that's, that's the difficult part about this job. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and I can only imagine that it's got to be the conversations like those that are, I mean, you know, I guess from my outsider's perspective, I would I would think that it would be sort of the the frantic scenario of blood and gore and things that would have the the impact on you to want to start a program like this. But I guess it's the conversations like that 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 really want to make you do something. Yeah. Yes. I mean, the see, yes, those are that's those conversations are challenging ones, and and certainly you know seeing those kids come in. Uh, with those devastating injuries, um, is uh, that look like again the folks that I grew up in my neighborhood, um, and knowing that you can do something about it—that's why you do it. Because we we know that we can impact them, and. As a physician, as a surgeon, if you know there's something in your closet that you can use to save a life, yeah, that's that's what you do. Dr. Carnell Cooper is Associate Professor of Surgery at the University of Maryland School of Medicine and Director of the Center for Injury Prevention and Policy. He is also the founder of of the Violence Intervention Program. And uh, Dr. Cooper, thank you for the work you do and thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. You're listening to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Hankin. After the break, WBALI team lead investigative reporter Jane Miller has looked into the origins of many illegal guns on the streets of Baltimore. She's found that they're flooding in from out of state. How a complex, intricate network of illegal gun sales is fueling the violence in Baltimore, right after the break. Welcome back to Life in the Balance. I'm Aaron Henkin. We're talking about gun violence in Baltimore this hour. We just heard from Dr. Carnell Cooper, a shock trauma surgeon who created the Violence Intervention Program in an effort to reduce the number of revolving door victims on his operating table. We've also met Brian, young man from West Baltimore who was shot 23 times. He survived, but he still deals with daily physical and psychological pain. And we also met Leonard Spain, Brian's case manager in the Violence Intervention Program. Leonard was once a shooting victim himself, and then later on he ended up behind the trigger 
shooting out in a turf war and accidentally killing an innocent bystander. He served 12 years in prison. He's now pursuing his master's in social work. Leonard says there are a lot more firearms on the street now than there were before he was put away. There's more firearms on the streets right now. Um, So I can remember times where I may have gotten into a disagreement as a drug dealer and because it wasn't so many guns on the street, me running around for 45 minutes trying to borrow a gun from somebody, after about 45 minutes, um, I would kind of trinkle down and like, and I wasn't as mad um, now because there's so many firearms on the streets. Um, it doesn't give them that, that pause time to kind of calm themselves down um, they can get angry about something and go right across the street and ask somebody for a gun and they'll go right and hand it to them right there. So they almost um, putting themselves in situations where they have to do it. In Baltimore right now, um, we, we have, you know, law enforcement that's, you know, that's, you know, selling drugs, um, you, you know, um, it's, it's, it's extremely violent. Um, so with, with Baltimore um, being the way that it is, um, those that are selling illegal guns from other states, um, it would make sense for them to market Baltimore, um, you know, as a as a um, you know a place to you know for the gun trade. You know, um, it's just like a drug dealer. A drug dealer wouldn't go where um, it wasn't going to be um, drug sales at. Um, a, you know, people that are selling illegal guns, they're not going to target a particular place where the crime is not high. Um, and because the crime is so high here with gun violence, um, you know, to a person that's in the business of selling illegal guns, it would make sense for them to target Baltimore City. Supply and demand, says Leonard Spain. And on that note, I want to invite WBAL I-Team reporter Jane Miller into the conversation. She is a veteran reporter here in Baltimore, and she's broken a number of stories related to the illegal gun trade here in Baltimore. Jane Miller, thank you for joining us. I'm happy to join you. So we just heard Leonard say back in the day it took a whole 45 minutes to get a uh, gun to get a gun <laughs> on the street if you wanted to shoot someone. Now, evidently, you can find one much quicker than that. Are you surprised to hear this? No. Talk about the basic economics that we just heard Leonard put forth. Good businessman goes to where the customers are. Tell me how this scenario fits with the reporting you've done. Well, first of all, let's let's get something clear about guns. Guns don't have a shelf life. So when you talk about, you know, the the supply may be greater now than it was before, well, that's because they don't disintegrate. They're not like a phone that eventually kind of wears out and doesn't work so well anymore. Guns don't have a shelf life, so they have a cumulative life. You can, I mean, I've seen, you know, a lot of gun violence committed by people that have guns that are 20, 30, 40 years old because they operate for that long. Um, But aside from that, we did a story uh, not quite a year ago, about the issue of where the guns come from that end up at crime scenes in Maryland, particularly in Baltimore City, and because it's, that's really where gun violence is centered. And this is, this is according to the Maryland State Police Gun Center, which does the tracing of guns that are found at crime scenes and recovered in crimes. 
it's about 60 percent and and actually higher in the city itself are guns that have their origin out of state. And what we mean by that is that what origin means is that they were purchased out of state. And they are often purchased in states to the south of Maryland because those states have far less stringent uh, restrictions on the purchase of guns than we have in Maryland. So Maryland is one of those states that has pretty tough gun laws, but it is surrounded to its south by states that don't. Um, so it's I, I used an example in the story we did of a case of a of a gun of a of an individual in Georgia who bought twenty five guns because he could bought them legally, but they end up in you know attempted crimes crimes et cetera in Maryland and in other states because they're being trafficked, and so there are gun trafficking laws federal laws. And that was one of those cases. But it's a good example of how you get this supply coming into a state like Maryland and a city like Baltimore. Guns are a very valuable commodity in a city like Baltimore. There are people who are carrying guns not because they want to hurt somebody, but because they want to defend themselves. They want to protect themselves. Their, their intent is not to hurt someone else. But they, they feel it's the only way they can protect themselves in Either where they live, it's dangerous, or what they do is dangerous, et cetera. So they're they're a very valuable commodity um, in a city where you have a lot of people that don't have a lot of things to trade on for in terms of value. If they're not dealing drugs, or even if they're dealing drugs, um, guns are a very valuable commodity. Talk to me more about that point at which legal gun purchases then get turned around and become illegal gun use. sales <laughs> well, and illegal yeah. gun use. Right. So you take a state like Georgia or you, you take a, a number of states around the country. Maryland is one of the few states. I'm, I'm, we should probably talk about Maryland. Maryland requires a seven-day waiting period on a handgun purchase. That means that seven days, kind of like he said about, you know, back in the day, you'd have to go wait 45 minutes to go get a gun. Well, here, in order to purchase legally purchase a handgun, provided you qualify and you don't have prohibiting factors, such as convictions, et cetera, on your record, um, you've got to wait seven days. So it's not an instant purchase. Other states have what they call insta-check, background checks. This is something that is now being debated because of the Florida situation. But you can essentially buy a gun on the spot um, through a gun dealer. There are limits in Maryland to how many guns you can buy per month. It's one per month. In a state like Georgia, there's no limit. So somebody can go and buy 25 guns at a gun shop, and it's like no big deal, perfectly legal, provided, again, they pass that insta-check. And, I mean, there are other restrictions that exist in Maryland but don't exist elsewhere. This is, I think, the other state that is often used as an example of this is Illinois because of Chicago. So how is it that Chicago's got these tough gun laws and yet it's got all this gun violence? Well, it's because guns are flowing across state lines, guns that are legally purchased in states with less stringent laws and less stringent requirements are flowing into states that have much tougher laws but very high demand for guns. Help me understand the sort of logic behind someone who has it in mind, I'm going to buy 25 guns here right. in Georgia, and I'm right. going to drive to right. West Baltimore and sell them out of the trunk of my car. Well, they're I'm not gonna... only sold for cash, but they're traded. How do so you... So if you, have, if you have a city which has a... which is known for its supply of heroin and now fentanyl, 
Um, and so now a gun becomes the barter chip, the bargaining chip. And I mean, I've heard, you know, stories on the street of cars pulling up without a state tags and what they've got in the trunk are guns and they're getting traded for drugs. And I think that's a very real possibility. And it's, you as the seller um, find the incentive of what you can trade to be more persuasive than the risk of having it traced back to you if it gets used in a crime in Baltimore City. Yeah, there was all kinds of ways to um, to do that. Uh, there are guns that have the serial numbers taken off of them. There are guns that are get reported stolen, which tends to then cover the paper trail. I mean, there are a lot of ways to do that. The, the, well, the, the conversation that this should spark, and it and I don't know that we're going to get there. We have such a difficult time in this country of talking about this topic. If you had national standards, this wouldn't happen like it happens. Would it still happen? Well, it might. But if you have, I mean, is there any good reason why somebody should be able to buy 25 guns at one time? Really? It's like, is there any good reason really for someone to buy an AR-15? I mean, really think about that. So if you had national standards, federal standards. And I'm not, this is not the first time this has come up. I mean, we've had um, Mayor Stephanie Rawlings-Blake would bring this up from time to time. She was involved with the U.S. Conference of Mayors and would talk to other mayors about this problem. So if you had federal standards that said there's a waiting period, that said a limit of one gun per month, that said XXX without and that was every state had to adhere to those standards, you wouldn't have this kind of, you know, trafficking issue that goes on. So what I'm learning from you is that nationally any state's gun laws are only as effective as that the state, state yes, with the that's loosest gun laws that's right. because they'll just flow from state to that's state. That's correct. That's right. That's right. And and the other thing that you have to remember is that Congress has been loath over many years to have anything like a national database of gun owners. So to really find out who purchased the gun at its origin is like this draconian process that ATF uses at some nondescript warehouse in West Virginia. And it's literally a manual process. They don't have they have databases with all kinds of things. Right. Yeah. I mean, there are there the FBI's got databases of of you name it, but there's no national database of a gun owner or of a gun, and so there's not some magic computer program you can go to and put in a serial number and, and bink, there's the trail of ownership of the gun. Yeah, they have these days in Baltimore where you can you know trade in your yeah, gun correct. for right. something, and yeah, well, you know, Aaron, the other conversation, and when we did the story last year, I mean, the other conversation that doesn't happen is what do you do so people don't go that route? So he's talking about a beef. You're talking about a beef, about being able to settle the beef. And if a gun makes it really easy to settle the beef in the most violent way and most harmful, okay? And so you, you, you have to, you, what you really are, what we're talking about is a behavior, a, a, a code of conduct in an individual that allows and that allows them to settle a conflict and, you know, a conflict with someone else, a dispute, a beef, whatever, with a gun. And so the, the harder question is how do you get that person off that path? So the guns become irrelevant because you're not going to settle it that way. 
And that's there. I mean, there's a lot of that going on. There's a lot of that work kind of work being done with I know community mediation. They do some of that kind of work. This is the conflict resolution work that gets done uh, with people that that may. This is all they know is how to settle the dispute is with violence. And that's the that's the real challenge in a city like Baltimore with its level of poverty and disenfranchised and level number of people disenfranchised, et cetera. Um, and that all they have ever known their entire lives is settling conflict in a violent way. And that's the that's the real challenge. Yeah, you can't necessarily legislate your way out of no. a problem. You can't where... legis- you can't legislate behavior like that and the, and a um, kind of your own internal code of how you operate. That's right. That takes that takes some serious intervention from people who really know what they're doing. Jane Miller is lead investigative reporter with WBAL, and uh, thank you, Jane, for joining us. Pleasure. Happy to join you. That's going to wrap things up for this hour. If you have thoughts and questions of your own about the topic of gun violence in Baltimore or the voices you've heard this hour, drop us a note. The address is lifeinthebalance at wypr.org. Life in the Balance is an original production of WYPR. The show is produced and edited by Katie Marquette. You can listen back to this episode at wypr.org slash life in the balance. The program airs here on WYPR on the first Wednesday of the month at 1 p.m. and again at 9 p.m. For 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Aaron Hankin. Thanks for listening.